All right, so today um, on OnSite, I'm really happy to have with me Chris Schlank, who I consider a, a friend, but he was also one of my very first clients when I started Core. He took a bet on me, a leap of faith. Chris is a partner at Savannah Partners, who are one of the most successful developers, investment companies. Um, he'll correct me if I'm getting anything wrong. In New York City, he's been in the business for decades. I want to talk to him mostly about his earlier years and how he got into the business. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome, Sean. I consider you a good friend and uh, an old, old, old uh, friend and colleague. No, don't say too many olds because that, you know, <laughs> that could date us. Um, yeah, I can. So I'm on Zoom right now. Um, no one's going to be watching the Zoom, but I just saw you take a sip of some lemon water. Is that a new daily ritual for you? Warm lemon water, not hot, warm in the morning. Gets you moving. Um, who's advising you on warm lemon water? I love to read. I love to read about health. It's something that I've always read. It's always come back as a great thing to drink in the morning. It used to be coffee to start. Now it's lemon water. And then uh, do a little stretching, so good workout. And then especially with the COVID, staying at home, it's easy to work out during the day. First thing in the morning, jump down, do push-ups, sit-ups, get your blood flowing. Um, awesome. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about a lot of what you just said because um, you, you said you love to read. What do you love to read most? I love personal sort of uh, things about your, how, to, how to grow as a person, health, just a little bit about the psyche. I love to read about real estate. I love to read about cities. Not fiction, but, you know, I just like to try to expand the mind. Although it's funny, being home for the past 60 days in the Hamptons, I thought, wow, I'm going to learn how to play the guitar. I'm going to read so many books. And in the end of the day, with the Zoom conference calls back to back to back to back, Actually, it's very difficult to read. Um, I find that after five o'clock in the, in the afternoon, my brain is fried. And, and I think that we're going to learn from this remote working that, that's been going on for the past two months. While everybody thinks it's kind of cool to be home, I think in the end of the day, it's a very stressful situation. Um, a lot of the guys that work for us uh, are younger, don't have houses in the Hamptons, and are cooped up in, in their apartments in the city, feeling lonely, feeling isolated and stressed out and and to get work done in this remote working environment it's very difficult to set up a call i mean what we do is very interactive we're looking at numbers we're going over budgets we're looking at stuff on buildings we're looking at buildings which we can't do now uh, but it's very interactive there's always four or five people opining on the numbers that we're doing to to assess the value of a building it used to be you walk down the corridor or you go to someone's office and say hey do you have five minutes to come to the conference room now you can't to set up a phone call between four people takes 15 emails. So it's, uh, it's inefficient. It's not fun. And I think there are going to be studies later on where this is, has been negatively affecting people's psyche. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think some of the, like what it's done for me is it's really highlighted some of the things that I've had to do prior, but now I have to do it even more so. Like, so you talk about eating well, exercise, meditating. I don't know if you meditate, reading. I wish I did. I wish I did. I wish I did. You, you really have to start doing it. I mean, I, I'm a very strong proponent of it. And, and like, if you read these books, you know, I've, I, what I've found is that most successful people are, are really adopting meditation now as a way to kind of clear your mind and just your overall general mental and physical health. Um, but I'm not going to preach to you about meditation. I'm going to ask you if you've read Tim Ferriss's book, Tools of Titans. 
No, I would love to. And, and after this, would you please text me a couple of things? Because I'm going to send that it. to you. I love advice. Yeah. So he's, he's incredible. He gives some incredible advice. But, you know, I think the, the most important thing is obviously to be disciplined, right? To set up a schedule. And I think being at home, it's more difficult to be disciplined than actually going to the office. And then you have like kind of more structure. Listen, my son is 17. He's, in, uh, he's a sophomore in high school in Connecticut. And he has remote learning from 9.15 to 1.45 every day. And so he goes to a school where you have to wear a tie at school, you know, button-down shirt and a tie. They require that you get on your Zoom class with a tie and, and a button-down shirt. Now, what he's wearing underneath, I have no idea. But, but <laughs> No, I think no pants, but he's got the shirt. <laughs> no, honestly, I think what you, you, what you say is very important. Being at home, it's easy to blur the lines of being home and being at work. And when you do that, the, that line that gets obfuscated becomes very dangerous because then you can sit around all day like a slob. You can eat whatever you want and you don't have the lines. When you go to work, you have to have a certain set of decorum that you abide by. Um, and I think that if you lose that sort of natural structure, then everything becomes a complete mess. And I think that it starts from your mind and then will go to your body. And that's why I've been very focused on, on the body part because I think everything derives from the body. And actually, the interesting thing is I was always in good shape, and then over the past four or five years, I kind of got out of shape for a variety of reasons. And I'm realizing now that the most important part of the body is your core. And I know that you like that. Because yes, I love that. Core. Can't say core more. <laughs> and, and, and the core is the spine, and the spine is the spirituality that, that drives you. And I'm spending a tremendous amount of time stretching, and on core exercises. And I'll do 10 different type of exercises in the morning for the core, not just sit-ups, but you know, planks side to side. And I think that that, as I said, is the foundation. And I know that when I'm doing chest or when I'm doing biceps or triceps, I feel so much stronger because the core aligns and sets you able to do your other exercises. And I think it's a, just a tremendous sort of thread of you know working out keeps your mind straight. And, and it's easy in this area to get your mind and being at home and being could be you could get sloppy. And listen, you know as well as I do, work is very challenging right now. You know, we have about six and a half million square feet of office space in our portfolio across New York City. And uh, you know, April rents were okay. We collected about seventy three percent of our rents. You know, today's May first. Happy May, and uh, we have to see what's going to happen in May. I have a feeling yeah. it's going to be worse. And it's a day-to-day -day combat. Thank God I have an amazing team of guys. We've got 55 people now. You know, we're vertically integrated. We have construction. We have construction management. We have uh, leasing in-house for every, all of our existing tenants. So, you know, we're handling it, but it's, it's very stressful. Um, yeah. And we're all in a bad situation. And I always say to the, our, our, our partners um, and our fund investors, you know, we're in this together. And I must say, the one thing that has surprised me over the past month and a half is the collegiality that's developed between my peers and people that we work with. You know, the management companies, JLL, CBRE, uh, and, and Cushman, um, these are three large institutional management companies, and for, they manage, three of them manage our portfolio collectively, but different buildings. And the amount of information sharing that's going on between rivals is just, it's, it's so uplifting. And when we talk to tenants who aren't paying, who can't pay, you know, we're in this together. So what's good for us has to be good for them. If it's not good for them in terms of a rent deferment, <clears throat> they're going to go out of business. Absolutely. 
So, I mean, you have the luxury of experience. Um, you know, you've been through the ringer before, more than once. You know, we actually went through the ringer together on a project. I got wrong. Eight, and you know, um, yeah. So, you know, it's almost like the third or fourth time round. You're a little bit more calm. You know, you're not as emotional. You can see it a little bit more objectively. You know, and make rational decisions and and be calm and know we're going to get through this at some point. So I want to turn the clock back a little bit. So you said you have a 17 year old son. You know, looking at him and what he's going through in this moment in time and his perspective. You know, you were a 17 year old kid, I think, at some point. Um, <laughs> how did you get into real estate, and what was that experience like for you? So to, just correction, I have three kids. I have a 22 year old son, Johnny. I have a 21-year-old daughter, Julia. They're both at UPenn, senior, rising, junior. And then Luke is 17-year-old, and he's in, in Connecticut. I was 17 year old, years old. I lived in, so I grew up in Manhattan, uh, Upper West Side, dead-end block at a brownstone. So I had the luxury of being able to play sports on my dead-end block, but uh, live in a vibrant city. And uh, I always loved real estate. I always loved How did I get into it? I got in. My mother was a real estate broker. So I used to sit in the kitchen eating dinner listen to her do deals. So it became part of my life. You know, 17 in New York was a little bit different back then. I used to go to Studio 54 and uh, mix it up with the celebs. At um, 17, you were at Studio 54. Well, actually at 16, to be honest, I can show you a picture. I have. Uh, I was reading the New York Post about a year and a half ago, and it was about this, the new documentary that came out about Studio 54. This was the first documentary that Ian Traeger ever participated in. There yeah, been tons awesome, and tons of documentaries. That documentary right. was awesome. Yeah. So I'm looking at the post online and I'm going through and I'm looking at Schrager and I'm looking at pictures. And then I swipe the, 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 the iPhone and I see a picture of the dance floor in black and white. So then I enlarge the image and I see dance floor of Studio 54, 1982. This is a Sunday morning and I said, hmm, you know, Chris, I was at Studio 1982. You know, it was a sophomore in high school, just turned 16. And, uh, Enlarge the picture, and boom, there I am, and six of my best friends. So I sent it around to my crew, and my friend Mark Diker, who we went to uh, high school with, circled all of our pictures. There were seven of us on the dance floor, so it was pretty funny. That is awesome uh, evidence. It's a good thing you're not going to run for president anytime. Yeah, definitely not. So uh, remind me of the question: How do you get into real estate? Yeah. How, so how did you like today? You're honestly, I mean, I'm not going to blow smoke, but honestly, you're one of the most respected people in the industry, you, you have an incredible reputation, you seem to stay away from drama, and you know, drama will come to us if you're in the business, just that's the name of nature of the beast, but you, you've stayed clear of it, you, you know, if I ask anyone about you, your company, your, you know, you and Nick, you guys have, you know, incredible reputations, you're incredibly successful, you haven't been an overnight success, obviously you lay the foundation for what you are now, you know, it started decades ago. You had some learning and some experience early on that kind of formed you into what you are now. Give me one example of like a couple of experiences early on that kind of formed your opinion and, and the way you work today. I can go back. I mean, I started Savannah in 1992 with, uh, with another partner named Jonathan Leidersdorf. I met him at University of Columbia. We were doing uh, our master's in real estate. It was 1991. But to rewind a little bit, I think the first time that really I understood that I really love cities and I love real estate is when I was taking an urban studies class in, uh, in high school and I read The Power Broker by Robert Carroll. 
It was about Robert Moses. Yeah. Um, good book. Yeah. I ended up doing my uh, college essay on Robert Moses. And it was an interesting thesis. The question was, do the means justify the ends? And it's a long story and it's a long book. Uh, so it's not worth to get into. But it's basically, do the means justify the ends? Um, Robert Moses was just a tank. He didn't abide by the normal mores of society where you have to get approval to do certain things. Robert Moses transformed the cities, the highways, uh, the roadways, the parkways of New York, Lincoln Center, all the, the roads and the infrastructure. But he did it um, very strongly and he didn't listen to community groups and he wasn't part of sort of the organic growth. He, he, he was a bulldozer. And the question is, was that good or bad? Um, so it's a long it's a long moral thesis but anyway i realized i love cities and when after I, le- I went to upenn and when i came back i worked for a single room occupancy hotel on the upper west side called the euclid hotel and i think that was a defining moment and the defining moment when you say good reputation and no, no drama i learned early on when i was 24 that not everybody is created equal so this this sro is a single room occupancy hotel 310 rooms, it was occupied by a variety of different people. People lived in SROs where there were small rooms with communal bathrooms and no kitchens. It was a safety net for people that fell out of society, sort of the pre-homeless place to live. Paid by the week, you know, 80-year-old women lived alone. They lived there with their husbands who had died and they lived there. Families of five lived in small rooms. So it was a whole different spectrum of life. And I ran the hotel Uh, for two years. And the program was, it was run by the Westside Federation for Senior Housing, which is a not-for-profit that was taking men and women out of the city shelter system and putting them in permanent housing. So I was running this building with social service backup, putting men and women who had lived on the streets previously uh, into permanent housing. And I learned very quickly that uh, life is not fair. And I think that kind of gave me a sense of compassion and a bigger sense of, of what, what the world was. I grew up in the Upper West Side, but I'd never been part of this world. I did that for two years, and uh, I decided I wanted more, and I, so I went and got my master's at Columbia to, to give me sort of a financial background. And then I started Savannah. And you talk about cycles, and you talk about ups and downs. It was 1992, and the world had just recovered. The city just re- was going through the financial crisis of the late 80s. And so my partner and I started buying defaulted debt on residential buildings and vacant warehouses uh, downtown in New York City. Um, My partner had money, very creative guy. I had no money. And so we teamed up and it was probably, you always say you better be lucky than smart. And that was the luckiest moment of my life to find this person who I started the company with. He's since moved on and uh, I mean, he's still around, Um, but he he lives in Europe, um, but we're still best friends. He's my brother. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it started that way. And then, uh, and then I just started buying buildings. The drama part is pretty simple. I don't believe in God, but I believe in spirituality. And I believe that the world is round. And I believe um, do unto others that you wish them to do unto you. I butchered that because I don't, it, I'm not a religious guy. But um, I just think that you got to be nice to people. I agree 100%. But, you know, in, we're probably in the toughest industry in the toughest city in the world. You know, I grew up with a, with a lot of the same morals and principles, and I believe in karma and that, but it seems like every day I'm challenged, you know, and, and you're confronted by, by this. Challenges make you grow. And I must say, what you said kind of resonated. I used to take everything personally when I was young. 
I used to take business personally. I used to, if someone did something in my mind that I deemed bad or mean or not nice, I would get personally uh, insulted and I would lash out. And I was very emotional as a younger kid. Luckily, it was long enough ago that that sort of temper kind of has subsided and people have forgotten about that. I mean, it wasn't egregious, but it was, I, I wore it on my shoulder. I think as I get older, I realize that you can't take anything personally. If you take it personally, it's business. It just t- takes you to the wrong place. And it muddles the truth of what you need to do, right? Whether someone is lying to you or is trying to cheat you, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect you. I think the biggest thing is that I really don't care about money. I'm lucky and blessed to have enough to live and have a great life. But I was never concerned about the last dollar. So that guides me in the sense that if I don't, in a negotiation, if I don't get the last penny, I'm actually happier. And I'll tell you the funniest story. So Jonathan Leidersdorf, who's, who I started Savannah, or started Savannah with me, um, probably started Savannah because he was uh, had the money. We were in a negotiation about five years after uh, we teamed up in, in 92. And it was kind of a harsh negotiation. And there was two sides. And there's always two sides to the story. And I'm a Virgo, so I always see the other side. And I typically negotiate knowing, well, I always negotiate knowing what the other side wants. And sometimes I tend to negotiate against myself because I know what they're asking has some validity to it. So we're negotiating, and I'm taking the conversation in a completely wrong way. My partner, Jonathan, is a tough negotiator. And at a certain point, he puts up his hands and says, guys, can we have a timeout? Here, Chris, can you come with me? Pulls me outside of the conference room. He said, Chris, do me a favor. When I'm in the room negotiating, don't ever talk. <laughs> and I learned a lesson. So, listen, I love what I do. And to get all bent out of shape about certain things. I mean, Sean, you're the best. Uh, give the best vision into my temperament when we did our deal together at 141.5th. It was a great, beautiful project. It, we, we delivered these condos and, and you know, Core and Sean and uh, Elizabeth Bear, Emily Bear, sorry, uh, sold out for us, but we delivered these condos in a terrible time um, yeah. and took our medicine and we did a great project and lost some money. And, but I look at that with such amazing, 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 amazing thoughts, that project. Yeah, so. me too. I mean, I walk by that building. Well, when I'm out loud out on the street, I walk by that building 10 times a day at least. And I'm always, you know, I, it saddens me that you guys did not make money on that deal because it was really a labor of love but I am proud of like what you guys did and what we did together on that project, you know, and I think that's a big part of it. At the end of the day, you know, you need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. You have a higher responsibility. I feel to society to leave some kind of legacy. And when I walk by that building, I look at what you created and I'm very proud of it. And I think it was an improvement, you know, really project. I don't know if you asked me, but if you say, what's the, what's the one project that you're most proud of? Interesting. I mean, there've been, I've done 80 projects in my career and I'm proud and I love each one separately. You know, I always say real estate for me is, is not just buying buildings. It's sort of developing children. Everything that we have, every, every building that I've had or owned has been some kind of a child. And it, it sounds, sounds sappy, but when we buy an office building in New York City, before we buy it, you have to look at it, walk it, walk the streets. Who are the tenants? Who should be the tenants? Who are going to be the tenants? What does the lobby look like? What does the lobby want to be? And I always say, so every building has a story, has a personality. They have good days and bad days. They smell. They smell differently. 
Uh, they like to eat different foods. So you have to treat each building like a child. You don't cut every, all your children's hair the same. You shouldn't make every one of your buildings look the same. And I say when we take them in, we're either giving birth to them if it's a ground up or we're adopting them. And then when they grow up and we, we sell them, they're moving on. They're going to college or they're going to boarding school and somebody else is going to take care of them. That being said, we're finishing a ground up condo on the Upper West Side in Morningside Heights called the Vandewater, a 32 story, 183 unit condo, 23,000 square feet of amenities, 75 parking spots. It's gorgeous. And talk about sort of, you know, what's your lasting, what do you give to the world on a superficial level? So this is in an area that is, you know, all low, low rise buildings. Morningside Heights, as you know, in the 120s on the west side, Riverside Cathedral Church is there and Columbia University, obviously. So when we went about designing this building, we wanted, everything we do is got to have context. So we wanted context. What is the neighborhood? And this is a tall building. Right. And it was the tallest building in the area. And so we wanted to make sure that this is going to be there for hundreds and hundreds of years, God bless. And people are going to be seeing it forever. And there's going to be thousands of lives in this building, people living there, coming and going. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the design. What would be the perfect design for this? And nothing's perfect. But we looked around and the context really came from Riverside Church and the Spire. And so we built this beautiful, beautiful building that I think is beautiful. And it's a labor of love. And we've been doing it for three years. We spent so much time designing it. And guess what? We're delivering it into, you know, it's 183 units with about 45 contracts signed. And, you know, we're delivering it into the same financial mess that I delivered 141 fifth. Wow. But I still love it. And this will, this project, whether we make money or lose money, I don't think we're going to lose money. It will always remain probably one of my proudest achievements. Yeah, no, it's, it is honestly magnificent. And, and the thing I love about that building is it's a New York building that fits into the context of the neighborhood. It doesn't feel 100%. like, you know, it's not like a spaceship landed and some, you know, foreigner came in and did like an art. It wasn't like an art project. No. And you know what? And the people that are buying there or contracting to buy there, because we haven't gotten TCOs, we'll hopefully get a TCO in the next couple a month or so after we uh, we get back to work, the people that are buying there are a little bit on the older side, but predominantly people that have a connection to Morningside Heights. People that grew up there, people that grew up in the Upper West Side, people that went to Columbia, people that went to Columbia, moved outside of the city and want to come back to the city and see Morningside Heights as that little haven, that quiet haven with three parks with the water view, it's, it's, it's really interesting that what we've developed and the organic nature of what we built, the contextual nature of it, has attracted people that appreciate it. And Vanderwater is what Morningside Heights was called. Interesting. So context, right? right. We tried to make the building in context with and, and, and not compete with the, the, the spire, but and also to bring back the history of what was this area. Yeah, no, beautiful, beautiful job. But, you know, I, I, I think of you not in the typical sense of a developer, right? When we have a conversation, the substance of our conversation usually lends itself more towards the art side of things, you know, yeah. the create, creative side of things. You know, I love be sitting in meetings with you talking about the creative aspect. And, you know, whereas most developers generally look at the numbers, they'll look at a spreadsheet, they'll value engineer. You know, I'm sure you have to value engineer, right? Yeah. You, you, you do want to make money. You know, you're not doing this for charity. But... At the end of the day, I think your value 
as developer and owner of real estate is the additive is your creativity and your, your the artistic side of what you bring to the table, which is the so favorite, rare. The favorite part of my day is sitting in a room with the architects and designing the interiors and designing the facade. And listen, they take the lead, but I would never. I'm a control freak. I love sitting there and talking and, and talking about walking the area. I mean, how much time I spent with Adam Ralston from Incorporated Design, who did the facade, who did, did the uh, interiors, walking and looking and talking and thinking and, and different views and, 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 and how to make it fit. Uh, and that's what I love. And, 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 but that also goes into the inside. Just, you know, how do people want to live? People want to live. You know, what, what drives me crazy, and you know, architects think that the more different materials you use in a bathroom or in a kitchen – means that the buyers think that it's more expensive and they'll pay more. No. <laughs> so many materials convolute the issue of simplicity. I mean, I think people want, when you walk into a room, your eyes don't want to explode with different colors and images in this. So I think the simplicity in life is what is attractive, but not making it boring, but making it subtly gorgeous. And, and what drives me crazy are light fixtures, right? And also, so people think that, okay, if, if an architect puts 17 different types of light fixtures in an apartment that the developers really thought about it. Well, when I walk into an apartment that has seven different or seven, 10 different light fixtures, all I think about is where am I going to get the light bulbs? How do you replace it? Right. <laughs> but so, plus it's distracting, you know, it takes away from the essence and the beauty exactly. of exactly. You know, yeah. And, and, and what we, what we did at 141 fifth and I'll never forget, Sean, you said to me, so incredibly, and that taught me, that was in 2006, we bought it. You said, Chris, sometimes you can't design for yourself. When you're designing 41 units, and, and I, I will never forget this, Sean, you have to design for what people want, not just what you want. And you said, please, trust me on this. And we worked with Setra Ruddy, um, Nancy and John, we were terrific. And you said, Chris, trust me on this. You cannot design 41 apartments for yourself. And I will never forget that. And that has stayed with my heart forever. And right. So true. But, and I remember the other one, it was transitional. It was traditional, you know, 141 fifth with the modern cabling and infrastructure. And so that beautiful mill. And that will always stay with me too. You told yeah, me two amazing positive. things you know, that I learned. People want quality. They want things that, you know, not for, not for the sake of a gimmick or that, you know, you want, you want to be able to buy. When you buy a home, it's forever, right? It's the biggest investment yeah. you're going to make, and it's got to stand the test of time. And you've done that beautifully on all of your projects that I'm, that I'm familiar with. I even I remember the Spears building on 26 yeah. that you guys did. What year was that? 19? So we bought the Spears building in a cellar. Well, it was a, it was a warehouse. It was a furniture warehouse. It was owned by Conway Stores. We bought it at a seller's auction in December 1994. Yeah. And that's West Chelsea, 22nd Street, between 10th and 11th. You have no idea. We bought it. We had to go through a special a zoning variance at BSA to get take it from commercial. We tried to rent it as a, a commercial space, but it didn't work, so we, we made it residential. And I'll never forget, in 1995, trying to get a construction loan on a vacant warehouse in West Chelsea, which was completely <laughs> different than I used to have to go to the building a half an hour before the bank tours and pay all the bums to get out of the way and then sweep up all the drug paraphernalia and the condoms from the street to then show the building. Um, <laughs> you see your Studio 54 days. Yes. <laughs> I knew some people after Studio 54 would go there. But uh, 
we sold, we converted the building to condos, 30 units. It was 100,000 square feet, large loft apartments. We sold up for an average of $330 a foot. Oh, my God. 1997. We made money on that. And I still, to this day, Jonathan and I and another partner own the retail. It's a gallery space. And in fact, actually related. Well, I'm going to be your tenant. Is, you're going to be my tenant at the sales center. for. The I'm, I'm putting a sales center in there to sell condos in West Chelsea. Yeah. But no, you, that was, I think, the first West Chelsea. First, project. first, 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 and, first. And I'll tell you, I'm not saying this to blow smoke. It's still one of the top three best because you know why? Because it's contextual, because it's not a glass box. I won't remember. You know, there's a lot of stuff in West Chelsea that is just not contextual. Correct. It looks like it's a, a UFO that landed overnight and doesn't belong. And one thing you learn, and you know better than anybody, people want to live in things that make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't feel right. If it doesn't feel right, you're going to go to sleep and there's going to be bad, bad vibes. You have to. It's got to make sense. Yeah, 100%. So couple of quick questions and I'm gonna let you go back to your second workout. Is this gonna be like the, the, the yes no questions? Yes, no, a little bit a little bit more complicated. Don't ask me, don't say Donald Trump, okay. <laughs> now I'm gonna leave you him out to, of this conversation. You have to edit it. We're not going there. What what's your favorite building in the world? Four seventy five Tenth Avenue. Why? Where, where Schrager was, where Martha Stewart was. I don't know, it's a freaking it's on thirty sixth and tenth uh, Avenue. Uh did I say tenth Avenue. Sarah Lehigh Lehigh building. No, no. Four seventy-five tenths. I don't know what the name is. It's owned by an older guy. It's the best building in New York City. But architecturally, or it's warehousey, beautiful white limestoney. I'll send you a picture. It's gorgeous. All right, that's definitely something for me to check out. I probably know it, but I don't know it by its address. You do. So it's on the west side of the street. What, what's just the two one blocks from the spire? Uh, I'm going to check that out. What What is the one? deal or building or situation in your career that got away that you 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 look back and you go oh if only i had gotten that one or um 295 uh fifth avenue the uh, taconic and meadow partners bought that it's the mercantile building it's the uh, textile building fifth yeah. avenue and uh 37 38 square foot building it's going to be an amazing 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 conversion to and, and cool techie office. What happened there? Did you bid and you lost the bid? It was a it was a It was uh, an old fam, four family members that uh, wanted to do a triple net lease. They didn't want to sell it, and it was just a matter of who they went with. The, the the people that got it were a little bit further ahead. They found out about it before it was off market. Found out it before we we found out about it. So they had their sort of their dream and their plans and their ideas a little bit further advanced than we did. They had a very, very, very large um, equity partner, who probably the biggest investor in the United States. And I think that that gave the family, since it was a triple net, at least a little bit more comfort that there would be no issues with payment. So was, was there a lesson you learned from losing that one that changed the way you think about no. future deals? No. One you thing just, you can, I can say is you got to keep to your knitting, keep to your underwriting. I'm sure they paid a little bit more than we did. You have to keep to your underwriting. The worst thing you can do is overpay. I always say that the deal you didn't do is the best deal you've done, right? You got to know what your budget is. You got to go in really understanding. And the minute that you start pushing your underwriting just to win a deal, it's, it's, it's toxic. So, you know, you get, we win deals you don't. I've won a lot of deals that people were upset about. Yeah. Last question. So I don't know if you know this. I did a TED talk about 
two and a half months ago. If you didn't, I'm going to send you the link so you can watch it. It's only 10 minutes. The premise is that I believe with a creative mind like yours, to be creative, you have to set up in your life structured time for unstructured thinking. Because some of your best ideas are going to come to you when you're in the shower, right? When, you're, when your conscious mind is at rest and has the ability to be free to think about ideas. And if you think back about most of your creative ideas, they'll come to you in moments where you're not distracted, right? You'll suddenly be walking down the street and you'll come up with this brilliant idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I really believe that you have to create in your life every day some structured time just to allow yourself to be unstructured in thought. You know, Bill Gates does this as an example. He goes off and he, he'll go away for a week just to sit and read and like do nothing and think. You know, um, do you do anything like this? Do no. You, where where no. do your greatest ideas? I need to read the power of now. You do. I've read that. Yes, now. I've read that book. I don't, I don't live in the moment. That's my problem. I'm always well, thinking about other things, and uh, that's one thing that I think I'm going to try to. But again, my mind is so frazzled with all the stuff going on. It's hard for me to actually. Besides my my morning routine, it's 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 just back to back to back to back. But I think the most important thing is, as I said at the beginning, just to, to structure some time. And I agree. And I and my the biggest hole in my being is meditation. Yeah, that's the biggest hole in my being. All right, See enjoy you. the day. Thanks, man. See ya. All right, see ya.